Okay, so we're here at OhioCon 10, 2010, and we're here with a um, very, very special guest. Carl Horn from Dark Horse Comics. So, in case you don't know, this man is, like, really awesome and amazing. And if you've never have gone to a convention where he's at, you're doing yourself a disservice. But to start off, just tell us about yourself. Let everyone know in the world who you are and what you, what you do and what you, why you do it. Well, I'm a, uh, I'm a manga editor at Dark Horse Comics. I've been there since uh, 2004. Um, before that, I worked at uh, Viz Communications, uh, now Viz LLC in San Francisco. And um, I began there in 1995 and started writing for them in 93. So I guess my professional work in this field goes back to the uh, early 90s. Um, I get into this like most people because I'm an anime and manga fan. Um, I discovered anime and manga pretty much in the early 80s. Um, in those days, there weren't any anime conventions per se, but when I was a kid, I used to play role-playing games, Advanced D&D, first edition. And um, so you go to other conventions, and people would like exploit these cons, you know, parasitical, you know, latch anime onto it, a science fiction con or a gaming con. So one convention I went to, they were showing an uh, anime called Space Pirate Captain Harlock, and sheer luck that it was subtitled. I say sheer luck because there was no fan subtitling in those days. Instead, um, what happened was that they would show Japanese programs on uh, KIKU television in Honolulu, uh, where there's a large Japanese-American community, and many of the Japanese series would be subtitled professionally uh, for export. So if you had pen pals or knew somebody who uh, was in Honolulu, they could you know, send you copies of these tapes. And that's, you know... I saw it on screen, suddenly like a spark leaped between the screen and me, and uh, that's when I was otakuized. <laughs> and this was in 1982. Um, at the same time, uh, the first manga being published in English came out. Um, this is Barefoot Gen, which um, has finally seen the end of its release. Uh, volume 10 has just come out from Last Gasp. Um, Barefoot Gen was a good illustration of why manga used to be released in the U.S. before there was an industry. It wasn't released so much because, for manga fans per se, it was released by an anti-nuclear group who thought this would be an interesting way to show off the personal testimony of someone who had survived the horrors of Hiroshima right. in comic book format. But they weren't doing it as a manga per se. Um, nevertheless, for someone like myself who was looking for anything Japanese, it was pretty right. amazing. And it was, it's a pretty amazing manga. Um, one thing people forget about Barefoot Again is it ran in Shonen Jump. Um, it was intended as entertainment for kids, and I was a kid, but it was pretty hardcore. It wasn't, you know, just some sort of lecture about war. I mean, they showed the effects. Yeah. They were awfully, you know, grisly, and a lot of it talked about his family and how they were opposed to the war and what that meant in Japan. It meant getting beat up and harassed by the police and so forth. Um, so it was some pretty intense stuff, you know, for an 11-year-old at the time. Um Going back a little bit more technically, the first anime I saw was Speed Racer. Um, I grew up in Iran uh, before the revolution, and uh, naturally. Uh, and uh, Speed Racer was on Armed Forces uh, radio television there. Um, as I said, I kind of wonder sometimes whether Speed Racer is still on the air in Iran, but they made a few changes maybe to it. Right. You know, given CG to give him a little bit of, you know, beard. There you go. You know, put a little scarf on Trixie. And now every time he's racing against, you know, heretics and infidels. Well, you'd have to. Exactly. Right. But, um, yeah, so discovering it in the early 80s and then 
pretty soon I was going to anime club meetings, the, uh, the CFO, which was the first national uh, club. Um, wasn't like Genshiken back then. Right. So, uh, um, as a matter of fact, I, maybe I was a, an appreciative little brat, but I didn't really like the clubs. I was the youngest person there. There was nobody my age. There was nobody 13 or 14 who was into anime then. All the dudes, I mean, they looked like they were like 40 or 50. They were probably 25. But when you're that age, you know. They all look older. Um, they were old school fans, you know, science fiction fans. Um, like, I'd see this stuff. Yeah, man, this is great, man. I want to go skate, man. You know, it's like I was feeling super energized by all this anime. And, you know, I would just see all these dudes sitting there, you know, on couches, like giant lumps, you know, and think, Jesus, is that, you know, this, this is not, it's not the way I feel about this right. stuff, man. Um, but um, so the... Um, that kind of scared me off uh, from clubs for a long time or, or forming any. But in my high school, um, we were fortunate that our high school had one of the first, you know, Macs, and we used it, and I totally exploited it to promote anime. Um, I was doing articles about Lupin Third for my school paper. Now, dig, this is 1986. Right. Like, you couldn't buy it. You couldn't see it. It wasn't on TV or anything. So I don't know why I was doing it. I just wanted to let people know. You know, it was like scanning, you know, the back of, you know, my books and all that. And I, I held a one-day Lupin convention at my school. Um, you know, we got a few people to cosplay. Lupin's not too tough to cosplay. Right. And um, we showed the three movies that were out then. And you had to get one of the teachers to agree to sponsor it. And she sat in the back for all 10 hours grading papers. Only to show <laughs> Lupin stuff. At least it's not drugs. But the, um, so, um, and I started writing for convention programs. And the reason I bring this up is that's how I started getting experience that would serve me professionally. Um, recently, I sent a letter to my old high school English teacher thanking her. Why? Because she actually gave me the job skills that I used to get a paycheck. Like, what I learned in my English class was actually the stuff I ended up using to make a living. Um, I couldn't write a coherent five-paragraph essay when I came into that class. But when I left, I was able to. And um, she really... I didn't realize, like a lot of students don't realize their teachers, a lot of their teachers just don't care. They're right. just passing you along, and they're not really teaching you anything. You're not really making any progress. So my first paper in a class, she gave me an F, and I was totally shocked. I'd never gotten an F before, but I deserved an F. Uh, the other people had just been, you know, too easy on me. And you can't teach, you know, you got to show people where they're going wrong. Yeah. And so my next paper is I was getting Ds, then Cs, and finally I was making As in the course. Um, Fortunately, she graded on improvement. But, um, yeah, if it were not for her, I wouldn't be able to work in, in this field. So um, this is really the story of my life, isn't it? That is a really interesting story of your life, so I'm, we're done with that. Yeah. The, um, in, uh, the first uh, fan subbing, as far as I know, started in 1986 uh, with the Macross movie in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there was a group called Group Santa Cruz. I'm actually going to do a panel on this tomorrow, but... Um, there was a personal computer that came out from Commodore called the Amiga, and um, this was the first one that was designed for video applications. So previous to then, it was not, I don't think it was technically possible to actually do fan subtitling on a computer. There were dedicated hardware units you could get that would do titling. Right. Generally only have enough memory for about um, half hours. You could do maybe a TV episode. Um, but... Um, so we began to think that we could do some fan subtitling of our own. Fan subtitling was very different back then in 1986, 87. First of all, of course, um, there was no World Wide Web. Um, you know, connection speeds were like 300, you know, bucks. Right, yeah. It... Um, 
I like to compare fan subtitling. It's like some deadly virus that's in a remote African village. But you know it only affects that village because there's no roads, there's no transport, so it stays there. But then one day they start clearing the forest and build these superhighways. Now suddenly the virus spreads everywhere in the world. That's what happened to fan subtitling. Back when fan subtitling had to literally be done on a physical tape that could only exist physically and had to be physically mailed to someone, it could only pose so much of a threat because its speed was slow. But um, when fan subtitling becomes something on the internet and it can you know, spread at the speed of light, well, that really has a much larger effect on the industry. And, you know, I don't mean to, like, make excuses because I am in the industry, but it is true that when I was started fan subtitling in 87, there was no industry here. There was no, um, it wasn't until 1988 that people actually started licensing anime and releasing it. Um, I don't want to make this whole thing about fan sub, uh, go into more detail, but that did lead somewhere. Um, my favorite anime film of all time, and still is today, was Gainax's first film, uh, The Wings of Oniamis, Royal Space Force. And I wanted to fan subtitle that because back then it was not about who could get things out the quickest right. or competing with other groups because you didn't even know there were other groups and you know nobody was like keeping score. But Wings of Oniamis had had a sort of failed release in Japan and America, and so I thought, this film's too good to be like left by the wayside. I want more people to appreciate it. So when I started college, I would show it all around at my school. And remember how I said that I got a bad impression of anime clubs? Right. So I didn't form a club. Instead, I just treated it like you would show any other movie. It's like, hey, tonight we're showing Raiders of the Lost Ark. Tonight we're showing the Blues Brothers. Tonight we're showing Wings of Oniamas. I wanted to get people to get start thinking of watching anime as normal. Like, you would watch it just like you would any other film. Yes, it's animated. Yes, it's Japanese. But you don't have to join a club or be in a sort of special group. Um, the way I figured it, you didn't have to be in a special group in Japan. Why should you be in America? It's just a medium for storytelling. It's you know exactly. Um, and I was really pleased to see the positive responses that um, my fellow students were giving it. Um, I often thought that a lot of students in my college understood the film better than your average typical anime fan. Right. Well, it helps that they were at college. Well, also one there's notorious. Um, to give an example, what the most notorious scene in the film is a attempted rape scene. Right. And whereas many, a lot of anime fans have asked about what does that scene mean or it does, I don't get it, no one ever asked me that at college because it was, you know, anime has a reputation for like tentacles and all that. Yeah. This is a very depressingly realistic depiction of what actual rape is like. Yeah. And, you know, we always got told about, you know, acquaintance rape and date rape, you know, because they, they try to educate students about, you know, how to behave towards other people with respect and so forth. And so people could see this was actually a pretty realistic scenario. And so people didn't see it as, um, um, I mean, it was sort of depressing, but it was realistic. So um, th things like that, for example. So this really energized me because I thought, hey, maybe Americans can like this film after all. Um, when I graduated in 1991, there was still no perception back then that you could actually work in the anime or manga industry. Back then, there might have been like 25 people total in the U.S. who worked in the industry. And besides, you know, my, my parents, like most parents, you know, they want you to get a respectable job. That's, you know, they're being responsible. So they wanted me to be a lawyer and all that. Of course. Um, I did end up going to law school. That was a little later. But um, I was um, a very, back then we were called a Generation X. And, you know, we were slackers, you know. It's like uh, it's the grunge era. Yep. You know, I had my flannel. I'm a big fan of Nirvana. And um, we were always told that we were the first, you know, generation that was going to do worse than our parents. Uh, 
that may be true of the current generation. But the um, anyway, so I sort of thought after I graduated, I sort of boomeranged and lived at home for a few years. And I kind of thought, well, maybe I can somehow do something with this film. Um, and I began to think about the um, public television because I knew that British science fiction had been on TV, like Doctor Who and Blake Seven. Right. And I thought, they show that stuff and they're okay with a lot of sex and violence and they're okay with foreign stuff and they're okay with subtitled stuff. And I thought, maybe PBS could be the place that anime could be. I still kind of think this is kind of an opportunity that's, you know, PBS could get a lot higher ratings. Um, as you may know, I mean, the biggest problem with the U.S. anime market versus the Japanese is there's so little anime on TV here. Yeah, because people, when they buy the manga, it's because they see the shows on TV and they go, oh, yeah. Yeah. A anime was never meant to be supported on home video alone. It yeah. certainly isn't in Japan. It's meant to be on television, and, you know, there's a dozen or 15 channels you can turn on and watch some anime in Japan. But there's, there's very little of that in the U.S. Like Adult Swim, everyone's fighting over those few you know, precious hours. Yeah, and since, you know, they make so much more money off their homegrown stuff rather than the, the anime stuff, they like to exactly. use that. And... That's right, and um, we have to remember that at the end of the day, anime is foreign television. Yeah. And naturally, people in America who make anime, uh, their own animation, are going to say, why should we give this to a foreign you know, slot? There's American animators who need work. And that, that's, that's understandable. You can understand that. It's, it's, we make good shows in this country. Yeah. Um, I just like anime, too. But... Um, so basically, and I guess I was like 21, 22 at the time, I formed a nonprofit corporation in Texas, and the idea was that um, I was going to get the rights to this film and show it on PBS. This is how naive I was. <laughs> um, I thought that since um, the film had not been a success, that Bandai, its owners, didn't really care about it. I didn't realize that Bandai never forgets about anything. Right. So, um, but um, I started, but I needed money. I needed to start researching grants and all that. Um, and... Um, I started, there are, uh, trying to think of, I think there are at least two jobs I've gotten specifically because I was an otaku. That, that is, I wasn't, I didn't get them because they said, you're an otaku, here's the job. I got them because I realized I could exploit them as an otaku. Right. And one of them was my first job out of college, which was medical, audiovisual librarian at the Texas Medical Center. Why did I get that? Because the keyword is audiovisual. There are five booths for like watching uh, VC, you know, VHS tapes. Right. That means five VCRs. That means I can copy tapes. Right, because that's, that's how fan subs were trading were done exactly. back in the day. Was... So then I could copy my uh, Wings of Oniamas, and I started sending it out to everybody. Uh, anybody who I, with a letter saying, uh, you know, hey, I'm you know, trying to you know, get involved in this project. I sent to like, you know, Tom Clancy. Yeah. It's like a Harlan Ellison. Um, uh, Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert, by the way, uh, sent me a postcard. Um, saying, it was a very brief postcard, but he said, um, I want to watch this, but I don't have time right now. But it was like a handwritten postcard. Nice. I never, I never forgot that he took time to do that. And as you know, he's been a supporter of anime yeah. over the years. So I, I got a very positive impression of him on that. Um, I went to our local PBS station. Um, uh, a lot of people might think public television began in some place like Boston or New York. It actually began in Houston. Uh, KTH was the first station there. And they were very supportive. Um, so <clears throat> I was just working towards all this in the early 90s. And at the same time, um, there was a local bar in Houston called um, Lavos, after Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of uh, New Orleans. And they started having, and dig, this is like 1993, 
started having anime nights to get people in. And I thought, and they're going to show a Legend of the Overfiend. I thought, this is great. 60 drunk rednecks watching Legend of the Overfiend. <laughs> this I got to see. So I went to there. I wrote it all up. And in those days, um, I first got on the internet in 1989 in college, got my first account. And in those days, it was uh, all Usenet news. Right. So it was all text-based. And there's a group called Rec Arts Anime. So I did a, wrote up a little article for it uh, called Overfiend Night at LeBeau's. And way over on their side of the country in San Francisco, California, at Viz, um, Trish Ledoux was editor of a new magazine called An America. Um, An America, which lasted between uh, 1992 and 2005, I think, was a homegrown magazine. Um, uh, I mean, as opposed to, say, uh, New Type USA. Right, which they brought over and... Which lasted for a while. Yeah, it it, did. The magazine business is tough. So she... Um, she asked me if um, I would like to start writing reviews, and I said, yeah, sure. So that was, um, that was one of the tracks. And in 94, I went to uh, Akon in Dallas, and I met one of the guys from Bondi, and we got into a conversation about Blaine Zoniam. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to release that you know, next year. So then I made a fateful decision. I was always carrying one of the fan subs of Oniamis on me. I drew it out and gave it to him. And I said, <clears throat> Mr. Yadomi, uh, I'm a really big fan of this film, and I've been trying to promote it. Now it looks like you're going to give it an official release. Um, I'd like to do whatever I can to help you know, work with it. So that was one of the ways I transitioned from being... The next thing I knew, I was you know, on the street, you know, stapling up signs for right. showing the local theater. Um, that also brings up one of the, um, you might call the the moral issues in going from being just a fan to being a fan who's a pro. And that um, I, under, I understand a lot of fan translators that a lot of what guides them is they have a certain vision of the work. It's in their heart. It's the way they want it to be, the way they want it to sound, you know, the way they want the lines to come off. And often they won't like the professional version for the reason because it's different. Right. Um, and I didn't entirely like the dub of Wings Onyamas. So I had to make that kind of fateful decision. Was I just going to say, forget it, I'm not going to work with you guys? Or was I going to say, and you can call this a rationalization if you want, um, well, even so, people should appreciate this film, and you know, they may still appreciate it. So, And besides, maybe I'm wrong. You know, Maybe that's just my point of view. Maybe other people will think this is fine. So I decided to stick with it, but it was definitely something which um, I wasn't entirely sure if it was right or not. Um, the, um, so I began to be introduced to the world of, you know, uh, moral complexity as a fan. Um, then in 94, I moved out to the Bay Area to um, start law school, uh, but I also became an editor at Ann America. And at law school, you know, you're, you're taking all these student loans. Right. I was thinking, I'm having to write these papers for law school, and I'm having to pay them to write these papers. Right. Ann America's paying me. So this is ridiculous. This is totally, you know, backwards. So I had to sort of the student loan thing is kind of like this tilting board trap. Remember, I said I used to play D&D. Right. And, you know, you have, like, three segments to jump off the trap or you're going to fall in. So I, I said, I better get out of law school quick or I'm going to owe so much money that I'll have to be a lawyer because otherwise, you know, I'll never be able to pay it back. Um, so that was when I sort of um, gambled on a career as an uh, editor at Ad America, someone working in the industry. Um, there was not a lot of money in it. Uh, I was mostly surviving off my student loans the first few years. 
It wasn't until Pokemon came out that there, that was a big hit. Yeah, I, I but, could um, see that. Um, I started writing for Wizard Magazine and for um, for some British magazines as well. Um, but um, an early, this is way before tw uh, 24, but back then in 95, uh, Kiefer Sutherland was doing anime voice acting for um, Armitage 3. And I got the chance to go down and interview him. Really, really nice guy, by the way. It looked like his handlers weren't going to give me the interview. Then he just sort of went in there and kind of interposed himself. Like totally, you know, totally nice guy and nothing egotistical about him. Only guy I ever met who literally chain-smoked. <laughs> I'd heard about it, but he literally never stopped smoking. It's like as soon as one would burn out, he'd put the next one to it. It's like this long chain. I guess that's why he's got that voice of his. But um, in, I know, it's just utterly fascinating, isn't it? Uh, in 90, uh, get to the point. In, uh, in 1997, that's when I first started editing manga. Um, and my first one was Neon Genesis Evangelion by Yoshiki Sadamoto. Um, I don't have, um, being my first manga, of course, I didn't have any experience editing manga. Um, the reason um, the reason I was asked to do so was because I was known as a big Evangelion fan. Right. So even if I didn't have the expertise on the manga, at least I knew something about the series. So that was the beginning of my uh, present career. And so I've been a manga editor now for 13 years. I guess you now know everything <laughs> about me. That's cool. So you work with Dark Horse now. Yeah. Um, what kind of stuff does that entail? Well, um, a manga editor is basically responsible for all stages of the taking it from the original Japanese Tonkabon, you know, untranslated, unlicensed, and sort of getting into that thing you can buy in Borders or, or Barnes and Noble. Um, um, often we are the ones to recommend that a book be licensed, in which case we have to do research into um, um, what the sales prospects of it are, what the likely costs are going to be. An important question is um, how long is the series? Like, if it's going to be a really long series, that might be more of a gamble, because we can't guarantee people are going to stick with it. Right, especially since, you know, it tends to be, like, the first issues tend to sell most, and it's sort of, I've heard it dies off each consecutive volume sometimes. That is correct. Um, oh My God, this is our longest-running series uh, since 1994. It's actually the longest-running um, Dark Horse title and longest-running manga in English. But um, it's been a struggle sometimes to sort of uh, keep it going. Um, the newer volumes tend to sell better than the older ones. We've been going back and re-releasing the old ones as well. There's a secret to that. It's because you number them now. Like the original ones, I remember trying to collect Amagadis, and the spine never had which volume it was, so I was constantly confused on which volume I needed to, to buy. But the newer ones, I noticed they're numbered. I used, to, I used to hear back in the old days at Biz that um, one of the reasons why people were reluctant to number them was to... They thought it might discourage fans. They realized how many volumes there were. Like, oh, damn, we're never going to get to the end. Well, that, I, I could see that, too, actually. Um, also, it's it's more tradition in American graphic novels to give things uh, names instead of numbers. Right. If you look at our like our BPRD or Hellboy uh, graphic novels, they all have like subtitles like, you know, King of Fear or War on Frogs or so forth, but not a number. So, But I agree that the numbering is, is more convenient. Like, you know, just number somewhere so that you know, I can go, okay, I'm on volume five, now I need to make sure I buy volume six. Right. And one time I think I actually end up with something else. I, I ended up buying, it took me from five to like nine. I was like, what's going on? So, 
But yeah. So series that are shorter, um, for example, one of our new series we're doing, uh, Evangelion Campus Apocalypse, is only three volumes. So uh, that becomes more attractive. Um, it's less of a risk. Um, you might also consider the strategy of releasing them all collected together as an omnibus. Right. Um, of course, you would need the permission of the Japanese license holder to do that. Um, so getting this information, you then go into what's called a costing meeting, in which you then present your details, and the accounting department uh, draws them up like an Excel file and gets projected on the wall, and you make uh, decisions about, oh, well, if it sells 2,000, we'll do this. If it sells 3,000, we'll do that. You have to want to see where you break even. And, of course, these are just projections. There's no right. guarantee that people buy them. Um, when you go to the buyers, and uh, that means usually diamond, um, you actually will bring the Japanese Tonka Bond as visual aids because, you know, um, you can tell a lot about the manga just by even without translation. Oh, yeah. So you show it to them and say, hey, it's this. It's got an anime. You know, the previous, you know, titles did this much and so forth. And um, that might help them, encourage them to uh, do greater advanced orders. So this, of course, all assumes you get to license it. Um, you, um, you make a bid, you make an offer, you know, to the um, Japanese publishers. We have a director of Asian licensing who does that. He's fluent in Japanese. I don't speak it very well, not very well at all. And, um, the, um, and of course, um, they can turn it down, and you'll also be in competition with other publishers as well. Um, but if you get it, you then make your plans and you put it on the schedule, and often we plan as far as uh, two years out. Um, it's often more common these days for us to release manga on a um, every three months basis, quarterly. The bookstores don't like so much anymore uh, having manga shoved in their face. There's a lot of that happening several years ago. It's there's so many manga being shoved on the market, um, the gl- a bit of a glut. Yeah, I've sort of seen sort of a boom and then drop off. Yeah. Over the past few years, where suddenly there was tons of like manga like everywhere you looked, and so you tend to get some of it was really good, some of it was not so good. But now it's sort of stabilized. It's natural. It's just like the dot com boom. I mean, yeah. You have a few things that are really good, and then everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. You never quite know what people are going to like. Although the general rule is that if they liked it in Japan, they'll like it here. That's not always true. Um, like, for example, in Japan, One Piece is bigger than Naruto. Yeah. My theory is because, you know, whereas they have ninjas, they don't have pirates. Right. So they find the pirates more interesting. Um, the uh, And especially when it comes to titles for older readers, there are some extremely successful titles in Japan, which nevertheless uh, people don't read over here. Um, even today, um, most manga readers are teenagers. And that's not to say a number of teenage readers are also sophisticated and are willing to read stuff for older readers. And I really appreciate that. But there are also a lot of people who, who's, they just want something, you know, uh, you know, kawaii. And, right. Uh, you know, and it's not, nothing wrong with that either. Um, there's plenty of readers like that in Japan. Even in Japan, the biggest manga magazines are like the Shonen Jumps. Right. That. Um, but um, the... Um, so, so the manga gets licensed. We need to acquire the materials from Japan, which have to be purchased separately. Um, materials meaning high-quality scans of either the original art or the film that was used to... Um, but again, something better than you could get by simply scanning the book. And I said, a lot of manga that haven't released in the U.S., uh, not too many by Dark Horse, were literally done by scanning the book. Um, one that we did do by scanning the book was Lone Wolf and Cub. Um, that's because... The manga was originally published in the 70s. And there are two ways to get the rights to a manga. 
you can either approach the publisher or you can approach the creator. Um, either of them can give you the rights, but if the creator gives you the rights, likely it is they don't have any materials. They don't have any film or anything. The publisher has that. So all they can basically say is, yeah, I'm cool with you doing my manga, but you'll just have to scan the book. Um, the original art may not be around. It's like, Clamp is a little bit unusual because they've held on to all their original art. Right. They've got, they, they literally, literally have a vault they built for it. So it's like Akira. Um, you know, people in suits, you know, under the liquid nitrogen atmosphere. Do they also name it after Tetsujin 28? Or I'm not sure what they call it. I think there is a keypad, actually, and uh, so forth. But um, so for our Clamp projects, Clamp has literally been going back and scanning the original art. So it's as you know, it's as high quality as you can get. Um, but um, and then of course it has to be translated um, and lettered. And you prefer to work with people who you have some experience with, or at least have past experience, who can meet deadlines. That's a very important thing because you say, I know Dark Horse hasn't always been the best about this, but you say, we're going to put out a book in May and you advertise it in Diamond Previews where you're supposed to release it in May and just not when you feel like it. Right. So um, everybody has to um, try and respect that and get things in on time. And, you know, it's difficult because freelancers have lives too. Right. Such as I hate to admit it. Uh, I've managed to pretty much dispense my own life. But the... Um, um, I don't care who died. You know, you go back. <laughs> the, uh, if you ever saw uh, animation runner Kuromi, mm -hmm. uh, being a manga editor can be a little bit like that. So, um, you know, I get all these in. Uh, we often do proofs uh, via PDF. Um, the actual pages are done um, as TIFFs, usually in Photoshop or Illustrator. So they take the, the RAWs originally in Japan. I give them a script in Microsoft Word, and then they, they put in the lettering. Um, depending on the book, the lettering can be either um, sound effects can be either fully retouched, that is to say, the Japanese um, effects are erased and English are put in, right? Or they can be not translated at all, as in Helsing, or they can be not translated but with a glossary in the back, as in the Kurosaki Corpse Delivery Service, or they can be, and this is fairly common these days, um, left in but with subtitles in English, right? I've been trying that on Evangelion. Um, I, I was reluctant to do subtitles. Um, the subtitles we're trying to do, we're trying to do them somewhat artistically to respect the appearance of the original sound effect. Mm -hmm. Like if it's a black effect, black subtitle, outline effect, outline subtitle. Um, basically, sort of treat it as a, a bit of art on the page. I've seen some manga in which the subtitles use the same font as the dialogue mm -hmm. and made no effort to like match angles and right. so forth. And, I personally think that um, once you put subtitles on a page, the bottom line is you're introducing something new to the page that wasn't there originally. So you should try to have it be somewhat harmonious and respect the aesthetic of the art in a small way. Have you um, been getting a good response with uh, the subtitling, or do you not, did not even know? Or? Not too many specific comments on it. I haven't asked people about that. Um, I am very happy when people send me in uh, letters. Um, it, I think it's somewhat surprisingly hard to get in fan letters. Um, I say surprisingly because people have no reluctance to put their stuff on forums and right. deviant art and all that. But when you ask people to then send in letters, often, I don't know, people get a little shy. Maybe it's because um, once you're in the book, it's up there as a permanent record, and if you get better six months later, you'll be embarrassed by right. your old stuff. But I do like it when people have the chance to actually you know, be involved in the book and become a part of it, so... I like it when people uh, take that opportunity. 
So what are you what are you editing right now? What's the what's your current uh, projects on your table? Oh gosh, um, sorry for the strong language. Uh, this is this AWO. I should swear more like AWO. There you go. Um, the um, I'm doing Chobits, uh, uh, Card Capper Sakura. Those of course are two plant projects. Um, uh, these are just stuff at present. Uh, Magic Knights Rare Earth. Um, uh, the Kurosagi Corpse Delivery Service, which, as you know, we're trying to develop into a feature film with Universal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, two series, the Shinji Kari Racing Project and Campus Apocalypse. Uh, oh, my goddess. What am I forgetting? I hope I'm not forgetting anything. It's a, it's a, lot, of, a lot of work, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of series. And I know Dark Horse is even more than just that. That's right. Um, there are other editors at Dark Horse who work on manga. I'm the only one who only works on manga, though. So the others like also work on American comics. I like the fact that in our catalog, because it's alphabetical, uh, Conan is right next to Chobits. Nice. So, good, That's a nice. Look. The juxtaposition of those two pretty much sums up, uh, you know, Dark Horse in the 21st century. So speaking of uh, Ada Blue and a manga that. You know that they're sad that is as not being released. The uh, Starving Man. I was asked to ask for a story, but not from Volume Two, Volume One, specifically the physics of the horse race. Oh, that. Well, um, as I've said, um, for Cosmo Koike, pretty much all Cosmo Koike plots are about revenge. That's the standard plot. Right. But um, I want to say it's the uh, Hagakure. There's a, there's a famous uh, book on, um, on what it means to be a samurai, the philosophy of samurai. It's one Forrest Whitaker's always quoting um, in Ghost Dog. And they talk about how if you're going to do something, you can't hesitate. You've got to go straight for the enemy. Well, Kazuo Koike is the opposite of that. It's like, you know, he's to go from A to B, he's going to go through, through Q, T, Z. You know? Right. He's like uh, the family circus. You know, can you help Billy find his way home? It's the dotted line that's going around the neighborhood. It's, it's kind of like Ryan like Freeman, how he can't just go and kill somebody. He has to go kill somebody to follow them, to kill somebody else. Exactly. To follow them, eventually gets to his target. And like in Wounded Man, um, he's got to have money to finance his revenge. Right. So they decide to fix a horse race using um, elaborate electrical engineering diagrams. Um, they're going to fix the horse race by bearing um, um, like taser-like electrodes in the uh, field so they can shock the right horses at the right moment. But it's not just enough to tell you this. He gives you the complete electrical wiring diagram with right. the resistance and the ohms and all that and lays it all out there. So that's the scene from Volume 1, I think, that uh, I'm talking about. It's pretty, it's pretty hardcore stuff. It's, um, I call it like the taxi driver of manga. It literally was drawn during the era that Taxi Driver, you know, came out. Um, the 70s, in some ways, were the greatest era for manga because it was when adults had started to read manga in large numbers, but it was before it became respectable. So it was very... Um, um, one way I like to... You have to know a lot of American comics to get this comparison, but one way I like to compare The Starving Man is um, if Wally Wood's uh, canon had been written by Robert Crumb... So it's this very um, manly adventure-style manga with lots of, you know, contemporary sex and violence, but it's all done in a total anti-establishment and completely politically incorrect, um, you know, attitude. So it's, you know, um, it's, it's very, uh, it, it's, it's an awesome, an awesome work. 
Let's see. It's too good for this world. It's true, at, le at least for America so far. Yes. I always hear, I always hear about it, but I've never actually had a chance to track any of it myself, because it's one of those things that you know, it was only two volumes were ever released at all, and so it's and they're out of print, so it's hard to get a hold of. It's kind of manga like, okay, you're 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 in a motel, suddenly the cops are outside, you got to get away, but you're, you're not just going to get away; you're going to set the hotel on fire on your way out and do it in some extremely you know creative fashion. So, what are your favorite? Uh, what is your favorite manga releases that um, that Dark Horses are doing, but you still like reading anyways? Helsing. It's like uh, Helsing is my favorite manga that uh, Dark Horses released, and that's rather interesting because I'm not a fan of like vampires in particular, or like Nazis, or like secrets of the Roman Catholic Church. But the great thing about the manga is it takes all these total cliches and just puts the pedal to the metal. You yeah. realize if you're going to deal in this stuff, you can't be half-assed. You've got to be fully asked. And like, yeah. Uh, um, you know, have you ever met Kote Hirana? I have not. He kind of looks like the major from, uh, right. You know, walking by in that coat and all that, this smart, you know, grinning. He's got those, uh, and you can just tell his like incredible energy and glee. He's just having so much fun. A lot of manga, it's like, why are you bothering with this? This is the same as everything else. It's like, but you see the energy and enthusiasm and, um, style and grace. He's got to be like one of the greatest inkers in the history of manga. Oh yeah, because oh. I mean, everyone's just grinning. Like that's my favorite parts of the manga, of, of the series, both manga or anime, especially in, especially in Ultimate. Because it's watching everyone smile at each other. Yeah, everyone in there is nuts. Yeah, it's like they're all crazy fanatics, and they're happy with that. And they're happy with that. Um, you know, it's um, it, there are some odd things about Helsing when you stop to think about it. I was talking about how. Um, no one ever comments on, I mean, people notice that one of the main issues in Helsing is Catholics versus Protestants. Right. That doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore. 50 years ago would have meant something. Or if you're in Northern Ireland, right. it might mean something. But like, no one really cares about the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant anymore. Another weird thing, you think about Millennium and all that, and the Major, he's in the SS. Yeah. Now, what was it the SS did in real life? There was a particular type of person the SS really didn't like and spent all their time trying to kill people. That's never brought up in there. Like, he totally removed all the racist elements. Yeah. Okay. And I guess it's because he just liked the idea of the SS as these bunch of really theatrical, sinister badasses. But it's just amazing how he just dropped, oh, all that stuff about, you know, ethic cleansing and concentration camps. Oh, never mind. I, I just find it's like, I just find it's amazing. It's sort of, you know, um, I don't know if that even would be possible. I mean, compare that to like, um, I think, uh, well, Tarantino's new film. Oh, yeah, Inglorious Bastards. I think that is something with the spirit of Helsing in it, in terms of its craziness and all that. Um, but, of course, Inglorious Bastards is completely aware of the whole issue yeah. of like what the Nazis were about. Um, I think the combination of the fact that Japan hasn't fought a war in 65 years, and also something also people always sort of forget about the Japanese. It's kind of obvious. They were on the Nazi side. Yeah. It's like, so when they, um, they weren't really so enthusiastic about the whole racial cleansing thing, you may have read Adolf by Tezka and talks about how a lot of Japanese actually helped Jews. But they didn't, you know, people get freaked out when they see all these Nazis in manga and anime. They forget they weren't the enemy. They mm -hmm. were the ally. So, you know, why should a Japanese people instinctively think of Nazi Germany as bad as Americans do? I mean, when you think about it, there's no logical reason for it. They were on their side. Right. Um, so I think it's that kind of... Um, weird historical situation that allows them to have people like the major because if, if Helsing had done in America he would never be able to 
you'd always be thinking about the fact that why don't these guys ever, you know, bring up, you know, you know, the Holocaust and all that. Right. But because it's in Japan, it creates this kind of weird sort of historical zone, which is different from ours. But um, I also think one of the reasons I love Helsing is I'm a manga editor, and um, I think that the adaptation of Helsing is great. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, who I've never met, I think he lives in the East Coast, does an absolutely fantastic uh, adaptation. And he, um, he understands the spirit of Helsing. These characters are crazy, and you've got to make them sound that way. It's not going to you know, work to have them you know, be real calm. I love the Major's accent. You know. um, and you just have to put that enthusiasm in there. And the editor, Tim Irvin Gore, does things that I wouldn't have the guts to do. Um, <coughs> he'll like leave in untranslated uh, bits of Japanese English. And sometimes they don't entirely make sense. Like they're doing a news report uh, from Alucard shooting up that hotel in Rio mm -hmm. de Janeiro. And the news report says gun genocide. <laughs> uh, the, um, but you sort of get the idea. Yeah. Um, this is one great scene where uh, Millennium Zeppelins are over Operation Sea Lion 2. They're over London. And Anderson sees him coming in. And Hirano is written in English almost illegibly. Um, Anderson is quoting the psalm about how man comes up like, you know, the grass is cut down like a flower. It's exactly the kind of thing Anderson would say in a moment like this. Mm -hmm. But it's like hissing out of his mouth because Anderson is so angry. It's like, and it's coming out like smoke. I might have been tempted to actually ask the letterer to re-letter it so it was more legible. And right. that would have been the wrong decision. Um, Tim knew to sort of leave it alone and to just let the kind of style of Hirano flow. So maybe these are things that only manga editors care about, but I think it, um, I think it affects the way the work comes across. So um, there's lots of other manga I like at Dark Horse, but I always mention Helsing as a favorite. I'm going to have to get a new favorite, I guess, because it's coming to an end. Right. Now, this I don't know if you have any answer to this question, but I've heard back way before Helsing really came out in America, um, there was a discussion whether or not they should name um, Alucard, Alucard, or Aracard. I heard the creator wanted the, actual, wanted the R, but they went with the L, because he thought everyone uses the L, so I wanted to use the R. But I don't know if that's true or not. Well, as I'm always saying, my favorite line is, you know, I'm not the editor of the title, so... I didn't know about that discussion. Um, I mean, um, Alucard, I mean, to get the spelling backwards right, Alucard right. would be correct. So I personally would have um, been in favor of that. Um, <clears throat> the problem is, as you know, as everybody knows, that they're the same sound in Japanese. Right. There's no difference between the R and the L. So um, um, Japanese simply doesn't have as many sounds as English does. So... Um, I can understand why it might not. And there were some instances in um, Helsing where that confusion was left in. For example, you see LIO at one point, and it's clearly supposed to be Rio. Right. So um, I don't actually know about that issue. Okay, so these are some more general Carl questions, not so much what you do, but more about yourself. What, you, what do you do to kick back and relax? What was that? Um, what was that word you mentioned? Relax. What does that mean? I don't know if I've learned that. No, I. I, I, I was just, things are very busy these days. Uh, to relax. Um, uh, gosh, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, the. Uh, I pretty much. Uh, you know, I pretty much uh, work on uh, manga. You know, twenty four seven. Right. It's like a, that's a problem having a laptop. You know, you never really. Uh, out of the office. Um, 
I'm thinking about um, thinking. I'm hoping to schedule some relaxation into 2011. Oh, okay, so um, that, that's a good date for it. This year isn't um, this year isn't looking too good for uh, uh, for relaxing relaxation front. All right. I'm literally working on manga in my hotel room here. Well, so um, do you ever have times where like you'll have issues with a certain phrase? You're not quite sure how to translate it or have it translated, uh, or how to edit it, and, and inspiration just hits you at random moments, or or do you just sit down and just do it? Um, I will. Uh, Usually, I'll get into a kind of a flow, and um, that's you know a good place to be because you know things are going. The for me, I think at least one of the keys in manga editing is to um, try and empathize with the characters, uh, see the way they see the situation, you know, because that's you know reality is so much of reality is made up of the way we see events. I mean, there's a there's obviously an exterior thing. If like if the ceiling falls in on us right now, it doesn't matter how we feel about it. It's going right. to you know, fall in. But for a lot of things, including like, you know, relationships, politics, and so forth, people have their own viewpoint of the world. So when you're editing a manga, you try to um, figure out what are these guys' viewpoints. You know, what are their delusions? You know, what are their obsessions? And from knowing that, then the kind of it's like a musical composition. You know, you establish these elements and they flow together, and you know, create a theme. Um, there are situations where I will come across something in Japanese. At, um, I don't translate. I don't know Japanese well enough to translate manga on my own, but I do know enough to ask questions of translators. So if I come across something where I suspect that this could have been translated differently, I'll often go back to the translator and ask him about it. Um, so, um, and, and I'm interested. I'm always interested. And this is one of the reasons I often do note sections in the back. I'm interested in how people phrase things in Japanese. And there's some things like when people use English loan words, mm -hmm. how they use them and why. So I like to take notes of these kind of things and to let people know about the kind of um, raw material that goes into it. Notice, you notice the big difference between the way I answer that question about relaxing and get back to manga. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so I can talk about what's, what's relaxed. Well, it's, it's really nice to be able to do something that you really love to do. So That is true. It's, um, I think I worked out that there are like fewer people who do... There are more active-duty astronauts at NASA people who do what I do. Right. Considering how accomplished it could be to be an astronaut, I'm not sure if that's a, a proud boast. But um, it is a little unusual, and I, I guess I'm doing it in part uh, because I was willing to stick with it, even though um, it wasn't easy to make a living, you know, in, in the first uh, few years. But um, the, um, I'm very glad to have the opportunity to do so. What are your favorite parts of Anime Cons? Uh, meeting new people and... Um, the uh, thing about anime cons is that they, um, you go around the country and every convention has a local scene, a different mix of people. You, you'll see people, of course, that you see all the time, and it's great to see old friends. But it's also great to meet new people, and the mix is always different. Um, I think that we probably have a much more diverse fan scene in America than they do in Japan, naturally, because Japan's a smaller country, right. more homogenous, and, and less population. Um, Manga creators and anime creators will often say that Americans seem more um, fresh and optimistic than Japanese fans often are. Because Japanese fans can be a bit cynical. They know where all the bodies are buried. And, right. You know. um, but also, uh, organized fan stuff is often more commercial in Japan. There's Komaket, which of course is done by the fans and other Dojinshi conventions. 
there's so many events that are sponsored by record labels, like you have to show up, sit down, you know, watch the idol center wave, you know, buy your stuff, you know, get up and leave. In America, almost all conventions are created by fans, and they're a lot more spontaneous. And you know, it's um, we for the most part we brought the stuff here. It wasn't pushed on us, you know, and um, it was never really meant to be seen by anyone but Japanese people. And yet, everyone around the world, you know, likes it. One thing I was talking about in the back of the most recent edition of Evangelion, the Shinji Akari Racing Project, Volume Three, was about anime fans. I mentioned that I discovered anime in Tehran. And um, I was talking about how if you can't Google Arabic, and most people can't, you're never going to know about all the anime and manga fans there are who use Arabic. Ironically, since Arabic is written right to left, like right. Japanese. Um, but yeah, I'm, um, people in the Arabic-speaking world got to see all kinds of stuff that we never saw. Um, all the great 70s uh, children's classics. You know, The Rose of Versailles, the greatest shoujo story ever. And a lot of people would think uh, they'd have a stereotype on the Muslim world. They wouldn't want to see a story about a female hero. Well, no, they, they do. And um, Iraq was a major center of anime dubbing in the 1970s. Um, even on those series before Evangelion, uh, Nadia, which is a big hit, that showed, um, that showed in the Middle East. Uh, Future Boy Conan, the only series that Miyazaki ever directed, also one of Ano's favorites. So um, I just try to... Um, you know, and I not only do I get to meet local fans like from the Midwest here, but at certain conventions I'll get to meet foreign fans. You know, the same way that there are Americans who will backpack through Europe. Right. There are um, anime fans from other parts of the world who will road trip and take buses and planes and go to various American anime conventions. You just have to listen for the accents. You know, I say that guy sounds Australian. You know, um, I met a Saudi fan at uh, in Chicago at uh, Anime Central. So yeah, um, you know, people are always going to surprise you the most because you know people are so different and unpredictable. So um, that goes back to when I was in college and how I didn't want to form an anime club because I didn't want people to think you had to be one type of person or mm -hmm. a certain type of person. I would like my dream is to have everybody who might possibly like anime come to like it, and you're not going to do that if you're going to be exclusionary. Right. You got to be as wide. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who are never going to like it just because. Not everybody likes animation, period. Not everybody likes Japanese stuff. It's just not going to work for them. But well, there's over 300 million people in this country. I'm sure there could be a lot more people who are into anime who oh, yeah. don't know about it yet. So even if you just get a small percentage of them, it's, it's quite a lot. What's, what are the things you like most about being a guest at anime cons? Well, um, you know, <laughs> I suppose I don't have to wait in lines. So, um, you know, uh, very... Bob and Emily uh, DeJesus, who invited me here, um, I've known them for a long time, um, and it was very nice of them to invite me. Um, being a guest means I have the opportunity to communicate with more people, because, you know, pe people are nice enough to come to me, you know, uh, at panels and so forth. Um, I might have the opportunity to put on a party. And um, the, uh, yeah, I, I guess um, I guess you might say, um, you know, it, it makes going to a convention a lot more convenient. So I'm very, uh, I'm very happy to receive the invitation. Do you ever get like crazy fans? Sure. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm crazy, so I, I don't know. <laughs> what, you know it, 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 it's like there's polite crazy and there's not polite crazy. So as long as you're polite, it's fine to be crazy. It's like you know, I like to, uh, you know, even if you're completely insane, try to be considerate of other people. 
It's like, uh, that's the real trick. It's like, it's not so much the mental imbalance is a problem. It's, you know, the, I guess the not being able, now look at how I've been going on with no consideration for you guys. You might have lives, you might want to do something else. But, you know, um, you know, people who don't seem to be able to see that they're going on and on and like, you know, you have to, ideally we can all like step out from ourselves a little bit and say, how am I sounding? How am I coming off? Like, I mean, I mean, it's one thing to be nervous. That's one thing, but to just you know, uh, yeah, I really think you know, uh, you know, you know what I mean. So, but you know, even so, that's not necessarily a bad person or anything. It's like um, you just sort of got to you know deal with it and and move on. And also, if it comes to things like anger, I understand like fans' passions, you know, because again, I am I'm a fan who works professionally. It doesn't mean I stop being a fan. Right, and um, I talked about how when I got involved with the commercial release of Royal Space Force, I had to sort of tamp down some of my own issues about, you know, this isn't this doesn't sound like my fan subtitle. The lines are different, you know. This is not the vision, quite the vision of the film I had in my head. What I should remember, of course, is that it's not my film anyway. I mean, I didn't make the film, I didn't write the film, but I understand those feelings. So if people are upset about things in adaptation, I don't simply say well, you know, never mind, you're just a fan, what do you mean? Because I understand where they're coming from, and I understand that certain choices have to be made and not others. So, again, that's why I at least try to approach every work with uh, sincerity and try to have empathy for the particular characters. Perhaps my interpretations won't be exactly the same as someone else, but um, at least I like the work, and, um, you know, I'm going to try to do it with an honest heart. So, um, for that reason, maybe hopefully I understand a lot of the um, you know passions that fans might have. Can you think of like the craziest fan, or the most impolite, craziest fan you've dealt with at all, sometime recently, past, whatever? I don't know. Uh, it, I don't know if it was directed um, particularly at me. Probably the craziest convention I've ever been to was um, there used to be a con in the Bay Area called Anime America. It split off from the Anime Expo. And this was in 1996. Um, and this is during the um, Atlanta Olympics, the con is over the 4th of July weekend. And we just heard word about the, uh, the bombing that happened in the Olympic Plaza. And I was out there, like, and suddenly I heard fans saying, oh, yeah, you know, tomorrow they're going to declare martial law. And this has all been planned out. And I suddenly realized that I was, you know, in the middle of a group of conspiracy <laughs> in the times. And that was kind of a, that was kind of a reality uh, slippage, you know, type of moment. I'm sure there's all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on at a, a con that I never see. But, um, again, like, you know, when you, we consider the diversity of anime and manga and what it's like and, you know, what some of its deeper, darker portions are like, you know, it's kind of hard to condemn other people's craziness. You know, I'm busy editing plenty of my own. Um, I think, for the most part, uh, I think fans have been pretty polite and, and pretty patient, you know, especially when I, I go on and on. So, um I guess maybe I've been lucky with, um, you know, I haven't had too much trouble like that. Okay. This is the part where we, we, we ask the hard-hitting, you know, really, really punch-in-the-gut questions we call the Awesome Five. What's your favorite candy or sweet? Um, God, I'm just a, just a bundle of... Uh, can we ask more questions about manga editing? <laughs> no, it's like, a, if you're candy or sweet, okay, that's a serious question. Um, probably something, 
uh, sour. Uh, let me think. Um, uh, gosh, um, I would say that uh, right now it's those uh, giant-sized nerds from Wonka. Excellent, excellent. If you are stuck on a desert island and you had to choose three tools to ensure survival, what would they be? <laughs> you said tool. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, to ensure survival. Yeah. Okay, so I can't just give up. I have to try to live. Uh, desert island. I would guess a uh, um, fishing tackle, something to collect water in. And a, um, a lens to make fire with. Okay. Now this one is more, more probably more up your alley. What project that you have worked on in the past or upcoming in the future you feel that most benefit by the inclusion of giant robots? Well, there's so many things that could benefit from the inclusion of giant robots, but what doesn't have giant robots? That's the problem. Even, even Kurosaki Corpse Delivery Service has a robot at one point. Ah, gosh. Eagle. Um, that was the manga about, um, this is a viz, it's about the uh, guy running for president of the United States. And um, there were no giant robots in it. And I personally think that elections would be a lot more interesting if the Republican and the Democratic candidate you know, each had a giant robot and slugged it out over America. I think so. They might be really giant robots, so kind of like on the, even Gunbuster might not be big enough because you're not just slugging it out over one city. They'd have to be big enough you could literally slug it out over America. Oh, yeah. So... Although, wait a minute, now logistically that's going to be complicated because um, you just can't have robots standing on the East Coast and the West Coast because everyone knows the coasts, they're the Democrats. And you want to have one on the flyover country where the real Americans live. And um, so, yeah, you're going to have to have, uh, yeah, so you're going to have to have a robot standing in Kansas and then maybe one <laughs> robot standing in Oregon. So it's going to be tough. But, yeah. Okay. Some say that you can judge a society based on the monsters that they create. What would your monster be? You mean, what would be the American monster? What, what you think would be the appropriate American monster. It probably would be composed of, like, you know, McDonald's materials. So maybe, like, a giant mass of, like, McDonald's takeout. You know, like, McRibs and... Uh, you know, fries and, uh, you know, uh, whatever their promotional sandwiches are this month. So I think that pretty much sums up the spirit of America better than anything. And also be really greasy, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Maybe call it the biggest Mac. Yeah. And here's the hardest one of all. How many awesomes out of awesome are you? I don't, I don't even know if I uh, have some awe, let alone awesome. The, uh, the my uh, my awesome is more like aw, so uh, I don't know. I'm working I'm working on getting to a to an awesome. So for now, it's probably somewhere between uh, zero and one. Okay, so. that that's our grading scale for things. Uh -huh. Like, cause we don't believe in actual numerical grading scales because that don't really tell you anything. So we feel that awesomes out of awesome, are as the appropriate, you know, it's the sum of all aw. Yes. So. And, and just, just for the record, we feel that you're incredibly awesome. We're going to give you, like, 15 things to edit out of awesome. Oh, my God. 15 things to edit. I already have so much. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's like I sort of see the future stretching before me in terms of, you know, pages need to be translated. Right. Pages need to be lettered. 
Um, I mean, it's great when the actual book comes out. You know, I have the shelf, and every once in a while I put another book on the shelf. It's like the Grim Reaper, you know, totaling up souls <laughs> and all that. But um, there's just, you know, there's the the sheer physicality of, of what I do. It's like, a, you know, paper cuts are an occupational hazard because you're, you're having these, like, big sheets of papers, like 300 together, and, like, you know, you got weight on them, and you're shredding your fingers. But um, the... Um, a lot of people don't realize that um, manga are actually products made in a factory. There's nothing virtual about them at all. They're big sheets of paper which are fed through a machine and like folded and you know bound and all that. And when it comes to Chobits, it's going to be printed in Canada. And we're actually going to have someone who is going to fly up there and stand next to the printing press and watch the copies as they go out. And if the colors start to slip, say, hold it, hold it. Adjust that again. So that's the kind of quality control. It's like being on, you know, an, I was going to say a Toyota assembly line. That's not such a good comparison <laughs> these days. But yeah, it's like um, I'm very grateful to the fans because the same fans who have grown up with the internet are also the people who have bought all the manga. And they still like reading books, which is cool. You know, we're, we're looking into electronic, you know, distribution manga too. But for the most part, the, the core of the industry today is in physical books. And I do think that there is a different experience in reading a book than there is reading something 200 pages on screen. Um, but again, in order to make that, you have to have a lot of uh, quality control. One of the great things about working for Dark Horse is that they publish so many different types of things. This, of course, is also a great company, but they only do Japanese books. Right. Um, and for the most part, they only do licensed material, where it's changing a little bit. Um, but Dark Horse is a lot of original material and a lot of American work. So I'm dealing with people. One thing that I never have to do is I never have to look at a blank page and summon manga out of it. At least the manga already exists in Japan. It doesn't have to be drawn or written. It has to be translated and lettered. But the guys I work with, they create comics out of nothing. That They have to go from an idea to a full-blown comic. And considering all the Eisner Awards they win, they do a great job. Um, that's the awesome. The co-editors <laughs> at Dark Horse I get to work with. Um, and um, it's really great to... I think that among manga companies, Dark Horse probably has the greatest crossover audience among comic fans. Like, all those dudes who were buying uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, you know, who bought the people who put it over the million mark, so many of those people are comic book fans. They weren't manga fans, per se. They wouldn't necessarily buy, you know, Love Hina or anything. Right. But everyone likes Samurai, you know, so the, um, you know, that, Blade of the Immortal. Um, a lot of the fan art we get for Blade of the Immortal are from people who really are quite professional. And I think they want to sort of show off their stuff and, you know, get involved in comics. Whereas a lot of the fan art I get for Oh My Goddess and Evangelion are people who are more just fans who don't necessarily want to work professionally in the industry, but just want to have some fun. So, um, Dark Horse is a wonderful opportunity to really see all sides of comics publishing, including the making of original comics. And um, they've always had the attitude that sort of, um, no matter what country it's from, there are good comics everywhere. I think this helps us also when we deal with Japanese publishers, because they know that we're not looking at manga simply as a commodity. It's not a magic you know, source of money and all that. I mean, we like to make money, too. But we're like them, that is to say... We know what it's like to create something out of nothing. We do it all the time um, with our uh, books. We know what it is to sweat and work with you know, writers and artists and you know, turn that concept 
for a blank page in a finished graph novel. So we, we go through what they go through. And we may be comics and they may be manga, but we can understand you know, the struggles of an editor. Um, and also we've been around for 23 years. So we're pretty, uh, we're pretty serious about our business. We can't always do everything that we'd like to do. And mm -hmm. sometimes we have to cancel series, but the company is still here. So, especially you know in today's recession, right? It's important. It is very important. Well, I hope you have many, many more great years to come of Dark Horse. Hope you all do just fine. <laughs> well, thank Minimum you. amounts of cancels as possible. Lots of new stuff, and thank you very much for you, you, talking you really, off our ears. You really, for the first time, made me think seriously about candy. It's like I don't know anyone's ever asked me that question before. Well, that's what we're here is because, you know, there's some things that are awesome. and Candy's one of those things, and no one ever thinks about it. And yeah. What's, what's your favorite? Oh, God. See, no one asks me that question, so I don't think about it. Um, I was Say it's awesome. I'm going with Snickers. And you? Uh, does Pocky count? You have to determine the kind of Pocky. The kind of Pocky. Like, there's flavors, so you have to uh, choose. Most likely. No, they made like a Snickers park, Pocky. That's not bad, like, although I would think a Pocky is more your favorite snack than your favorite thing. That's true, that's true. Oh, yeah, so I was going to ask if Pocky doesn't count, then um, I'd say Reese's, because it's got both chocolate and peanut butter. I don't think you can possibly beat that. Yeah, so you, you know, you get your chocolate or peanut butter, peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah. And you? I'm not much on candy, but if, if we're talking about the strict definition, mine would probably be Gobstoppers. Uh, yeah, another Wonka, fine Wonka part. Yeah. Well, okay, cool. All right, and for that, we're going to close out. We'll see you next time. <laughs>